and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you across North America on the Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osowski, broadcasting to you from said location in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I'm joined by my colleague, David Clement, who's right outside the Toronto area. So, David, we're broadcasting from our respective locations where our show airs. How goes it, man? That's good. It's good. Um, it, it's a pretty unique experience. I mean, the, the pandemic has has uh, rendered something like this largely impossible for the last year. So it's cool to to have you in Wilmington and to have me in the GTA. Hopefully, at some point, we can do a show live or uh, with both of us in in each studio um, at some point. But uh, it's it's going to be a little while for here in Canada, but. According to my sources in the United States, COVID is pretty much over. Uh, that's, a, yeah, have... that's exactly true. I think um, having been in the U.S. now for a couple of weeks and particularly out here at the beach uh, in Wilmington, as the, uh, the fellow dressed up as the Joker said on South Beach, COVID's over, baby. <laughs> and you know what the hilarious, like, it's, it's actually really uncomfortable now as a Canadian because some of the, the public um, public health recommendations have been very conservative. And then at the same time, like the Carolina hurricanes played game one in front of almost 13,000 fans. And it's like, Holy cow. We, I still can't go eat dinner at my, in my mom's backyard. That would be illegal and a $700 fine. And yet, in Raleigh, North Carolina, they're operating a, a, an indoor venue with 13, nearly 13,000 people for playoff hockey. And it's like, oh, my goodness, this is this is going to be excruciating. Not that I want to be like a jealous, like, I can't believe they figured it out, but it's hard not to be. Yeah, things are, are definitely shaping up. Even I saw that the European Union has agreed that they will open up to all tourists who have been fully vaccinated or from countries that are deemed COVID safe. I don't know if Canada is on that list as of yet. I haven't been able to check into all of that. But yeah, here, man, it's uh, essentially out here at the beach. It's pretty much uh, mask optional. Uh, it really seems like there's a lot of people out here. I mean, th- these are the, the stories they told us about the beach uh, you know, about a year ago in Florida, when they would, they were just, oh my God, the horror! People at the beach outside in the warmth, getting sun. <laughs> uh, but it's it's just crazy to see. Is uh, I was in the Big Talker studio this week here in Wilmington. That was great to see Joe and the gang, and and really connect once more with what we're doing. And uh, we're trying to provide a great voice for consumers on the radio. That's why we have our program, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. And uh, plenty of stories and stuff to get to. We are going to be playing uh, some of our past interviews as kind of an evergreen because we thought they were uh, really important. We have uh, Dr. Kimberly Josephson talking to us about woke corporations and woke capitalism. I think that's always very pressing. And uh, David, what's our what's our first interview actually that we'll pitch to? Because I think uh, I think you put the the moving pieces for this one together. It will be with friend of the show. Uh, none other than media mogul Steve Forbes. Um, so he'll be talking about 
the Biden administration's budget, spending plans, what that means uh, for American taxpayers. And so that will be a great conversation. He always has lots to, uh, to add into that discussion. Um, anything that any, anything in the fiscal realm, and Steve Forbes is on it. So uh, it is a great interview for you guys to turn into to tune into. All right, so that'll be a first break after uh, we get that commercial out of the way. Uh, speaking of the Biden administration, there was one of my articles that hit the transom. This is on uh, Biden's push for broadband equity. Uh, this is contained within the infrastructure bill. Um, no, at this point, I think it's, I don't know if it's actually in text form. I don't know if they've introduced it yet, David, you might know, uh, but it's $100 billion that is supposed to go to equipping everyone with broadband, uh, particularly in rural areas and people who don't have um, adequate competition. So obviously great intentions there by the Biden administration, $100 billion for internet. Uh, but we see that this comes with all the various problems uh, that come with any type of huge uh, plan like this, particularly they're focusing on municipal broadband. They will want to allow cities to create their own uh, internet service providers. We have a long list of where that's failed, actually from the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. But they've done a good job there. And we're also going all in on broadband when we actually have very strong mobile networks that are bringing internet around the country. We also have satellite internet, thanks to Elon Musk's Starlink, uh, which is really interesting. I haven't signed up yet. It's, it's only $99. Uh, you can sign up to get access to the satellite and they send you a little receiver for internet. Uh, but that will be active across the entire country, particularly in, in, uh, in North Carolina. But also this is rolling out across the world. I mean, I, I think I mentioned before, they have something like, what, a thousand satellites, and there are already 10,000 customers of this service, and it's download speeds of up to 300 megabits per second, which I know is faster than probably anything that you can get up there in Canada, David. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible stuff when you think that it could largely render a lot of these discussions about infrastru infrastructure uh, redundant. Uh, I'm not sure if you kind of share that view, but it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we're going to spend billions and billions of dollars to create system X. And it's like, well, at the snap of a finger, a new technology can come around and render that um, less useful or redundant. And so it may be one of those instances where you I'm not sure. I mean, I, I couldn't, I don't have a crystal ball, so I couldn't tell you on where that's going. I do say I have a bit of a bone to pick in regards to Elon Musk and his, Bitcoin flip-flop. Oh, tell me uh, about it. Because, I mean, that just seems... I, I think I'm in a good position to say that if he had made similar comments um, about a stock... Well, very quickly, for those who don't know, what did he say about uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, or, or the like, in order to kind of set off what you're about to talk about? Yeah. So... Okay, so he announced that, that they were going to accept Bitcoin for payment. Um, so he was embracing Bitcoin and, and he had talked a lot about other cryptocurrencies. And Tesla did, and they, they generated some considerable Bitcoin uh, allocations. And then they recently, or he recently announced that they weren't going to accept Bitcoin until the energy issues with Bitcoin could get sorted out. And so obviously we saw a bit of almost like a market manipulation where his announcement that they were going to accept Bitcoin skyrocketed the 
um, the price of Bitcoin and then his announcement that they weren't going to accept it anymore, what I think after he sold his, um, rapidly caused a huge fall in the price of Bitcoin. We're kind of seeing the aftermath of that this week. And it's one of those things where it's like if he had if he had performed the same stunt about a particular stock, it would likely be investigated um, to basically say, like, I'm buying and I'm buying big and then to sell and then to say, I don't believe in this anymore. It just feels really uncomfortable to me. It, it is. And it's, it's um, if, if I could give a, a kind of. Uh, let, let's give a comparative scenario. It's, it's as if the uh, the new newly found Catholics who were once atheists uh, then become you know the biggest stalwarts, and then all of a sudden they denounce the religion. Uh, it, it's just crazy to see the cryptocurrency space is one that is highly confusing. It's moving incredibly quickly at all times. You have so-called whales, people who have lots and lots of cryptocurrency who can move the markets just by uh, you know putting their crypto in another wallet. And yeah, definitely true. Elon Musk's comments, you know, this guy, it's not as if he did not know that there's a lot of mining that happens for these coins in places like China and that there are energy uh, questions about how much yeah. they're using. Uh, that, that's not really a surprise. I do, I do know that up in Canada and Quebec specifically, I believe the company is Bitfarm. There's a lot of them that have moved up to the very north of Quebec and they're doing mining in a pretty energy efficient way because it's so cold up there that they've actually been able to turn out, yep. you know, pretty good profits. And you know, there are ways that people can do this and the market is solving that. But it is true that this his kind of rhetoric on this, there's a lot of people who follow him and will follow his advice and it just kind of gave uh, sort of an incentive for people to to sell at the top of the market. And now it's, geez, it's like half of what it was like two weeks ago. <laughs> Not yeah. looking good right now for, uh, for Timo Soski, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Feels, feels a bit like a pump and dump, which in many instances are borderline illegal, but so it goes. We'll see uh, what so happens it goes. Here. Yeah. I mean, there, I still think that yeah. There, there's a lot of happening. There's a lot of innovation. We'll try to get a, a good crypto entrepreneur on uh, in the next couple of weeks to talk about this because I, I think there, there's still a lot of great innovation there. And I always go back to the point where it's never about the price. It's about the technology. Uh, but everything is you know focused yes. on the price for the moment. But as long as the technology is improving, the price doesn't really matter. But then again, people have been putting a lot of money into this, uh, myself included. So. <laughs> The pain hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's 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 one of those things where right now it's treated like an asset, like a like a company stock, very speculative and volatile. When in reality, the purpose or the end purpose of it is for it to be far more stable and operate as a medium of of exchange. It's funny because I've had some some conversations with folks where they're like, "Yeah, but." Bitcoin, Bitcoin isn't backed by anything. It's like, it's just a, like, it's just e-money, but it's not actually dollars. It's not backed by anything. And then you always have some fun conversations when you're like, well, what is, what is the dollar backed by? Well, there you nothing, go. just our faith, just our faith that it will continue to hold its value and the, the ability for us to exchange it as a medium of exchange. And so you do have, um, similar criticisms of of both, um, and it's just a, 
a question of time, I think, to see if some of these cryptocurrencies, predominantly Bitcoin, because I really think that that's the only major one, uh, can cross that threshold to be widely used in, in some sort of transaction beyond like asset. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think we're, we're going to get a lot more innovation. There's already a lot that's happening. Uh, the fintech space is improving each and every day. And I think there's a lot of great stuff that we'll hear there. We'll try to provide a lot more analysis and research. And you can always go over to uh, the website of our organization, Consumer Choice Center, consumerchoicecenter.org. Uh, we'll be having more research out on there. David, I know there were a couple of Canadian topics that you wanted to hit. Obviously, we talked about uh, some of the reopenings that are happening across the U.S. and Europe. Uh, Canada, it seems as if things are getting a tad bit better. But as you mentioned, uh, you better not have some uh, steak and asparagus in the background, uh, the backyard of your mother, because then you'll be fined. Are things improving, you know, in any way? Is the vaccine drive going to get a bit better or is it it's still uh, still like a cloudy, cloudy day up there in Canada? So, I mean, it. it- is there light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, things are, de- are getting better. We are getting closer in terms of the amount of our population who have a first dose. Um, so we're almost comparable to, we're getting there in terms of being comparable to countries like the US or the UK in terms of first doses. Um, but that really doesn't mean much if the second doses don't catch up because that's really what ends the pandemic is once you have enough people with two doses. And so we still lag way, way behind in terms of people who are fully vaccinated. And so, I mean, it just depends as to how much, like in Ontario, it doesn't look too great, but I will say the premier of Saskatchewan is starting to, he's emerging very quickly as the one guy who's figured it out because he's basically said, well, we're not gonna listen to the federal government's guidelines. We're gonna go our own way. And once we, we once we meet our own thresholds, we're going to start to reopen. And so, hopefully, his aggressive push to ramp up vaccinations uh, and his willingness to reopen will put some pressure on other provinces, and then we'll start to see a cascade effect. But I'm not that hopeful yet. I mean, I still, we like you said, it's still against the rules to, I mean, go and have an outdoor meal with your family in a backyard. It's like there's a lot of room to go, but keep, I mean, I'm trying, trying to stay as hopeful as possible here. And I think that's exactly what you need, but Hey, it's all good. Um, isn't it strange though, that Saskatchewan is now the Texas of Canada, whereas used to be Alberta, <laughs> but now, <laughs> now, now yes. we have uh, Saskatchewan going above and beyond, or, or maybe it's the Florida of Canada. I'm not sure. Not, <laughs> no one has ever made that comparison ever before, but no, I, <laughs> that may be the first time ever in the history of the world. I, I have heard uh, Saskatoon be called the Paris of Canada. So there's that. The Paris of the Prairies. There you go. Yeah, uh, yeah so that'd be interesting. And I know, uh, David, you're working on a couple other topics. Uh, definitely a lot of ride sharing stuff that's happening yep. in, in Toronto. We've kind of, a lot of people have kind of forgotten the ride sharing stuff. But I think that, you know, the more and more that we're opening up and the more that people are getting back to work, uh, people are socializing, you know, we could see an, a big uptick in people using sharing economy stuff. I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, I think it could come back with a vengeance here once people start to travel again. Uh, Uber, Airbnb, e-scooters, all of those things, we could really see some kind of wide-scale um, influx of, of people ending up uh, using those things, maybe because they don't want to, let's say, use public transit 
because of crowding or something like that um, or crowded hotels. But yeah, it's uh, I'm just hopeful. I mean, my, my, my hope is that our recovery from this looks like the roaring twenties um, and, and that we really come back with a bang here and, uh, and can do all the fun things that we have dreamt about for the last two last year, year and a half. Well, let's hear it for Great Gatsby. The Roaring Twenties shall begin. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, uh, David, great first segment. We're going to pop it on over to commercial. And uh, first interview we'll have is a replay of our conversation with Steve Forbes. And then after that with uh, Dr. Kimberly Josephson. Stay tuned here on The Big Talker and Saga 960. We'll be right back after this. And we are back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I have the pleasure of uh, introducing uh, one of our guests for this week's program. He is a uh, recurring guest now on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Steve Forbes. Good to be with you. Thank you. Great. So, I mean, we're we're, uh, on the cusp of a 1.9 trillion uh, with a T trillion uh, dollar COVID relief bill. And we couldn't think of someone better to talk to than yourself about the good, the bad and the ugly in this bill. So uh, what do you see? What's good? What's bad? Um, what's ugly in, in Biden's kind of core piece of legislation or so early on in his administration? Well, despite the name of the bill, it's mostly a uh, political payoff to the Speaker of our House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, and key constituency in the uh, Democratic Party. Only very generously looking at that uh, 1.9 trillion U.S., only about uh, you take a very generous out, uh, look at the bill, only about 600 billion really relates to the COVID uh, relief, including checks to uh, individuals of an additional $1,400. Uh, to uh, the 600 that uh, went out a few weeks ago. The rest of it is uh, political pork and payoffs. There are over over $350 billion to uh, various states and cities. Uh, that's to uh, that's a disguised bailout for mismanaged states. They jiggered the formula in this bill to favor uh, uh, blue states, as we call them, <clears throat> Democrat states that have been mismanaged, uh, such as New York, California, Illinois, New Jersey, and others while the so-called red states uh, get punished, who've managed their finances well. There's a huge <clears throat> payoff of over $86 billion to various union-run uh, pension funds that have been uh, grossly mismanaged and uh, not funded properly. So when you look at the pieces of it, it is uh, really uh, an abomination. If they just wanted to focus on COVID relief, they could do it for <clears throat> a fraction of that price, especially as the U.S. economy continues to show great resilience and strength. Moreover, we've got uh, the third vaccine from Johnson & Johnson uh, now out there, which means uh, by the latest June uh, that we will have uh, what, do you, what they call herd immunity. Um, and uh, literally hundreds of uh, millions of uh, doses are now going to be produced. So the coronavirus crisis uh, is receding. And uh, the U.S. economy, you look at various measures, whether it's uh, manufacturing, retail sales and the like, is ready to roar. But unfortunately, the Biden administration is putting obstacles in the way, including this mammoth bill. And one way they're going to finance this bill is by printing a money, and that's going to create problems down the road. 
Definitely. Uh, Steve, this is Yael here. A question that I had is in the alternate reality of a, of a President Forbes, uh, you talked about how this is not really going to help individual people. What, what would have been an alternative relief bill that would not have included all of these payoffs? Would that have been uh, sort of just in direct payments again, or perhaps not at all? Or what would a better recovery plan or relief bill have looked like here in the, in the first, uh, first term? Uh, well, the, the, the recovery would have focused on uh, first uh, businesses that were hurt, uh, especially small businesses, by the uh, shutdown uh, from the pandemic. And uh, there's some money in there for that. But what uh, the program called the payroll uh, relief, uh, what they call PPP, payroll uh, relief, is uh, getting only $7 billion dollars. They haven't loosened restrictions on small businesses qualifying for these grants and loans. So uh, in those particulars, in terms of helping small business, they could have done better. It wouldn't have cost much more, and they could have swept away a lot of the what I think were stupidly conceived regulatory bureaucratic obstacles put in by our Treasury Department. That would have been good. Uh, getting money out to help uh, more vaccine distribution, that's fine. If you wanted to do another payoff to people, that would have been fine, even though I'm a conservative and most conservatives oppose it. I was in favor of those individual checks uh, because they're one time. They don't uh, distort the labor market and uh, they give people immediate relief. Uh, but the provisions they have in for topping up unemployment benefits will give millions of people uh pay them more not to work. We already have over 6 million job vacancies in the U.S., and they're rising as this economy recovers. So it would have been a much more focused approach, uh, helping individuals uh, directly, helping businesses. I also would have gone for uh, suspending the payroll tax in the U.S., which is about 15 percent, which hits people from the first dollar they earn. The U.S. income tax uh, doesn't really hit the most low income, lower income people. Uh, they get hit by state income taxes, but not by the federal. But uh, something that was done uh, on a smaller scale uh, back under Barack Obama, President Obama, back in 2011, 2012, they had a small suspension of the payroll tax. I'd have done one six months or 12 months. That would have given uh, both uh, individuals, especially lower income individuals, a big pay increase. And also would have lowered the cost of hiring people uh, for by, by businesses. So it would have been win-win. So uh, and I would have cut out all this other pork that they uh, the junk they put in there. So it would have done a lot of good, had a lot of positive incentives, and uh, would have cost a fraction of what they're doing now. And the key thing to keep in mind is that to finance this, they're not going to just finance it by floating more bonds. They're going to affect have the bonds be bought. Uh, indirectly by the Federal Reserve, which means creating more money. And if you look at the U.S. banking system today, they are overloaded by a factor of several times of uh, necessary reserves. So uh, uh, the, 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 this uh, money printing is going to be the old kind. I think it's going to uh, have a danger of inflation later this year and early next year, and that's going to create unnecessary problems for the economy. Uh, the, our, our central bank does not know how to deal with this, I don't think. But it was all unnecessarily self-created. On on that note of inflation, because that's something that Yael and I um, have, have spoken about previously. Our last episode touched on this. 
how how resilient do you think the U.S. economy can be to these inflationary pressures? Because I know that there are some um, in in that world who say it's not a problem. Inflation is not in is, is not coming. There are others who are maybe very loudly ringing alarm bells saying that this kind of house of cards can only stand for so long. I'd love to hear your take on what that inflation could look like. I know you mentioned the latter half of this year, um, but walk our listeners through what this could look like if inflation does start to creep up on us. Well, what it, what it does mean is that uh, prices, consumer prices start to rise. And uh, we haven't had a real binge of that uh, since the 1970s, early 1980s, when it was finally conquered in the U.S. and in the, most of the rest of the world. And uh, it's very distortive of the economy, especially hurts uh, small businesses and uh, job creation. And uh, <clears throat> so it, it, does, it does real harm. And one of the big mistakes is that uh, those who say, oh, uh, printing money doesn't matter anymore, ignoring places like Venezuela, they say it doesn't matter because look what happened after the 2008-2009 crisis. Uh, the Federal Reserve did a lot of uh, creation, uh, bought a lot of bonds, what they call quantitative easing. But what gets overlooked is that the banks at the time uh, had to rebuild their balance sheets. Uh, they had to rebuild their reserves. And uh, then you had uh, what they call Basel III, which is an international agreement on capitalization for banks. Nobody knows about it. It's one of those obscure things that's out there but has real consequences and uh, the Basel Basel III as they call it Switzerland where they did this agreement uh, those reserve requirements were met uh, months ago by U.S. banks so U.S. banks are chock full of reserves unlike with the situation of 12 years ago where they had to rebuild balance sheets so the money that the Fed creates now is more likely to get shot into the economy whereas the uh, what they call quantitative easing the huge amount of uh, Money creation the Fed did after 2008, in effect, went into the deep freeze. Uh, banks parked the money at the Fed, got a little bit of interest on the excess reserves. But uh, we don't have that situation today in the sense that uh, the banks don't have to rebuild their balance sheets. So if the Fed doesn't know what it's doing in terms of sterilizing this massive money creation from these bills that are being passed. And remember, the last bill that was passed in December and, the, the, and previous bills passed last year, COVID relief bills, there's over a trillion dollars still unspent. So you've got this new near $2 trillion of legislation going through. You have $1 trillion that still is unspent, which means that this money is going to be flowing in the economy not just this year, but hundreds of billions are going to be flowing into the economy next year at a time when uh, the pandemic is, uh, for all intents and purposes, over. Now, Steve, last question before we go to break here on uh, Consumer Choice Radio. We've had over the last two months a, a huge emphasis on financial markets and individual investors, retail investors, this entire revolution with Robin Hood and democratization of finance and investing. What are your thoughts on this? Is this something that uh, is interesting? Does it pose a threat uh, to many of the main people on Wall Street? Is this something that uh, we can look forward to in the future? Or do you think this is a temporary fad? Uh, in, individuals getting involved in the market, no, especially the big difference between this and other uh, episodes in the past is that we have zero commissions. You don't pay commissions anymore on stock trades, which is phenomenal. And uh, so it's, it's costless to go in and out, in and out, in and out. 
And uh, what you saw with the uh, game uh, stop and others is uh, we've seen this movie in variations before. People get uh, there, there gets to be a mania. They pile in. In this case, they uh, smash the short, the big short institutional short sellers, which everyone applauded because nobody likes short sellers, even though short selling has a real uh, and necessary place in the financial and economic universe. Everyone hates them just like everyone hates hyenas or sharks and things like that. They do have their place in the scheme of things. And, uh, and so, uh, and so uh, uh, we've already seen uh, GameStop uh, have a huge rise and then huge falls. So a lot of people are going to get hurt. And uh, you have to learn what rises rapidly doesn't necessarily stay up. It goes up and down. And not all stocks uh, rise up. Uh, some of them do, but uh, a lot of them don't. And uh, you, know, you, know, you remember 20 years ago, Amazon, you know, you had the high tech bubble in the U.S., which crashed spectacularly. A lot of individuals got hurt. A lot of institutions got hurt. And most of those uh, high tech uh, stocks went, uh, went bankrupt. But the few that uh, survived uh, did very well. Amazon had a stock then was 100 bucks a share. Went down to, when the crash came. Went down to under 10 dollars a share. Today it's over 3,000 dollars a share. So there'll be some survivors, but a lot won't survive. And individual investors and institutional investors always have to learn the lesson. Human emotions can get carried away. You can say it again and again, but it always happens. It's human nature. So this generation of investors, they'll be in the market, but a lot of them are going to learn. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a dangerous place if uh, you're, you're not careful. And one, one quick follow-up on that, because I know there was a congresswoman who proposed adding additional taxes on, on trading so that there is a commission. Would that be appropriate policy, or would that just hurt, hurt low, lower income or retail investors? It, it, it would hurt. And, uh, it, you know, the politicians are always looking for ways to pick your pockets. And so if they put on a transaction tax, they all get mesmerized. Oh, we can get uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in from this. They don't realize in this high-tech age, those trades can be uh, executed offshore very easily electronically. In New York State, uh, uh, they are talking about a transaction tax. And uh, both the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ made quite clear if they do that in the state of New York, they can easily move their uh, operations to Austin, Texas or Dallas, Texas. And Texas has already been talking to them. Hey, we're, we'll welcome you with open arms. So uh, uh, stop taxing people, reduce the tax burden on people. And by golly, government will get the revenues because when the economy prospers, government always gets its cut. Well, thank you very much, Steve, for joining us again. Uh, it's been about a year since we last had you on. And I hope that if we do have you on in one year's time, we are no longer talking about COVID-19 and relief bills and all of this crazy spending. Uh, I have a feeling like when we do chat with you down the road, we'll, prob we'll probably still be talking about those things. But uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for uh, your insight. Really uh, good fun being with you, and I hope the Biden administration learns sooner uh, rather than later that sometimes less is more. If they did nothing except uh, open up the economy, get kids back in school, economy alone, they'd look like geniuses in six months because things would be really booming. <laughs> Perfectly said. Thank you, Steve. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. 
and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 1067 FM. We are very delighted for our next guest on the program. We have Dr. Kimberly Josephson. She is an assistant professor of business and the associate dean for the Breen Center for Graduate Success at the Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. Dr. Josephson, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here course. And uh, I wanted to highlight uh, two articles of yours that we will put in the show notes that people will be able to see afterwards. The first one, why competition is the antidote to big tech's bad behavior, not politician. If given a chance, the market will eventually provide solutions to many of the grievances stemming from big tech's clumsy efforts to control user content. This is obviously still a very hot topic. Uh, we have an entire uh, we're deluged with all the different congressional testimonies and, and speech online. Um, if you could kind of summarize for our listeners, what was your thought in sort of penning this article and, and what is your reaction to everything we've seen uh, the last uh, several months over free speech concerns and, and different companies and, and how legislation plays into it? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, something that I pointed out in the article is that there's always been an ever-present concern for monopolies, right? Control of the market. Uh, but really, whenever there's a demand in the market, entrepreneurs, opportunists, they'll respond to it. Uh, and so it's, it's best to kind of let the market sort things out, because when you have government interference or policy that comes into play, that could actually deter uh, those opportunists, those entrepreneurs to want to take advantage and get involved. Um, and so in the article, I even reference how you know, the big box stores were going to replace the mom and pop shops, and now you have the online e-tailers that are replacing the big box stores um, and things like that. And so the best thing to do is really just to kind of let, you know, let time play out. And as we see, actually, um, we do have a whole slew of different platforms that are popping up. It seems like almost daily, right? Uh, so right now, like Clubhouse is now the hot new cool thing. Um, and, and so these different channels, they'll, they'll come about if there's a need. Um, whenever, you know, you have a supposed monopoly, it's usually because that is the uh, leader in the industry, which means that they're doing something right. So sometimes it takes a while for entrepreneurs to leverage uh, what it is others are doing, learn by doing, um, and then figure out, okay, how can I do this better? And if this is the top leader, right, I'm going to learn from it, and then I'm also going to try to outperform them. So Facebook and Twitter, yeah, they were, they were the leaders, and in terms of um, wanting to censorship or things of that nature, in all honesty, that's in their power to do. It's their company. Um, it is their platform. Um, and yes, it's disheartening for those that really are, were enjoying those free services, but essentially they were even free services. It's not even like they were taking things away from us that we, uh, we paid for. It was something that we were using and then, you know, they decided to self-regulate. And I think big tech is even a little unsure of, uh, you know, how they should deal with free speech concerns, because some of them have even reached out saying, hey, government, regulate us, help us. We don't even know how to navigate this. And that's really strange to me. Um, so once again, in, in my article, I kind of just focus on, hey, you know, do we really want to get government involved? Do we really want more policies? Because once you do that, it's hard to retract it, right? Once government gets, and, and also we could attribute the success of big tech to the limited regulations that happened early on, because uh, government didn't know how to regulate big tech. If you think in regards to really 
um, innovative industries, ones that are growing quickly, it's the ones where government has the least interference. Um, think about Uber and Airbnb and all those and how that sprung up so quickly. And then the government was like, how do we regulate this? How do we you know, manage it? And it's creating these complications now after the fact. Um, but less interference is usually better because once that interference uh, starts, it does make it more difficult for new entrants to come in, uh, creates a deterrence maybe for entrepreneurs who want to enter. And, uh, and once again, you, you, it's hard to take away policy once it's put in place. Yeah, it's funny. Whenever I see politicians kind of clamoring on about monopolistic status, I, I tend to bring up the old headlines from the MySpace era when they were essentially saying the same thing. MySpace is so powerful. Is MySpace ever going to lose its monopoly status? And I mean, for a lot of people listening on the radio now, I don't know, maybe half of them probably have no idea what MySpace even is. Um, let alone what it was sold for and, and all of those things. So it's always interesting to see these arguments replicate themselves over the span of 15, 20 years, where I'm sure if we were to revisit this again, so long as um, barriers to entry are not put up, we could be having a similar conversation and be like, oh yeah, remember when we used to post things on Facebook and, and, and our kids or grandkids will look at us and be like, dad, you're being old now. Like, why are you talking about Facebook? Um, but on, oh, on, completely. yeah. And I actually really appreciate that you brought up MySpace because I was a late adopter to Facebook. I loved my MySpace. I was a big fan, right? And that was a way to show your music and how you were cool and things like that. And your top friends. Your top six yeah. friends. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, now students, you know, all of my students at LBC, Lebanon Valley College, you know, they almost, oh, Facebook's not that cool anymore. It's not that hip. Actually, Twitter and Facebook are, are used a lot by kind of, um, once again, the older generation and even legacy media and things. So they're figuring out, you know, how to use TikTok and these other forms. And, you know, so by the time, uh, by the time maybe government figures out how to regulate Facebook, uh, probably won't matter. <laughs> mm. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. Uh, one line that I wanted to go back to in your article. So like any vice that is in our life, individuals need to take on some personal accountability for what has transpired in the online and trading realms. Uh, you were also speaking about the GameStop frenzy and some of the investing stuff. And this is, uh, you know, from a, I guess, many weeks ago. So there's so much that's transpired. Uh, talk us through that as well, because we don't often talk about personal responsibility or accountability uh, when it comes to using these platforms. It's always assumed that the only people who get to make any decisions in this realm are the companies and the government. And it seems as if consumers are kind of left out. Right, right. Well, and, and calling the device too is, is, I guess, just a personal opinion in that, you know, we've become somewhat obsessed with the online realm and with our phones and what are people saying and how many people are liking things. I mean, I'll be honest, even with my article, it's like, ooh, how many people liked it? Did anyone share it, right? So we become like kind of, you know, enthralled with these forms to interact and engage. And there is, a, in a sense, the madness of crowds. And so like with what we saw happen with GameStop, like that was just kind of wild and, and, and unique. And that was all done on the online, online realm and thinking like, hey, we're going to, we're going to, you know, tear down the system or we're going to rework it. And it's like, what is your actual goal? What are you really looking to accomplish, right? So a lot of these um, 
you know, when you hear people speaking out about things, but there's no other alternative, or maybe even not a full understanding of how this works, how hedge funds work, how trading stocks work, like, hey, you should have someone um, who knows how to invest to help you and, and, and guide you through this process. Um, so yeah, so it just, it was just kind of interesting that all of this stuff was happening around the same time. So the concern of big tech censorship, and then, you know, the GameStop, uh, you know, kind of mob almost that happened. And, and people were saying, the government needs to do something, right? We need policies. This shouldn't happen. It should be regulated. And it's kind of like, well, you know what? Sometimes we need to be allowed to make mistakes, right? And realize, oh, that was not a smart move. Oh, I shouldn't have posted that online. Or maybe I shouldn't be following, you know, this influencer. Or yeah, if I'm going to make a big investment, <laughs> let me go through the proper channels and make sure that I'm smart about that investment. Um, you know, once again, once government gets involved, and, and this is not to say that government shouldn't, you know, play a role at all. But the more we use government as a crutch and rely on it and seek allotments or safety nets or safe, yeah, safety nets or what have you, um, you know, it's, it's hard to then take away once again that interference and that autonomy. Um, something I find really interesting because I am a business professor. So in my courses at LBC, uh, we talk about there's been a real dramatic shift within organizations um, that focus on the empowerment of employees and granting autonomy and the decentralization of power. And companies are seeing that their organizations are much more productive, uh, have a better work culture when there is this kind of flexible environment of here are our goals, here are the tasks that need to happen, but I'm going to let you figure it out. Right, and I'm going to provide the resources needed and support if you need it. But really, you know, this is this is your responsibility. Have at it, right? And and we encourage you to collaborate and network with others within the industry and sector. Um, granting that autonomy and giving that power to employees is is proving to have a very positive effect. So I don't know why in society we don't take that same approach. We look really to government as in this kind of top-down control, whereas you know what, as individuals, we should be engaged in our own communities, in our own societal welfare within those communities um, and have that decentralization of power and autonomy in regards to what it is we decide to support um, or not. Yeah, it's funny. You should send some of that research to Paul Krugman because he just wrote an absolutely terrible op-ed in the New York Times basically saying, Americans have too much choice, they're too dumb, they make mistakes, and we need to stop that. Uh, but quickly uh, pivoting to your, your second article in regards to corporations meeting consumer, um, consumer demand or what consumers want rather than catering to causes. Uh, walk our listeners through what your argument is and if you could maybe help us find the line between when causes and consumer demand merge, because obviously I can think of several instances where uh, corporate interests do kind of blend the two, um, but I'm interested to hear what your, your take is on where kind of co corporate social responsibility has gone as of late. Sure, sure. Yeah, so once again, as a business professor, we talk about kind of, um, theory and history in regards to business practices. And there are these eras of marketing that organizations have gone through in regards to, you know, the production era. This is what we make, take it or leave it. 
the selling era um, in terms of, okay, you know, we're going to leverage economies of scale. And the more we produce, the more we can sell, and the more we can sell, the more money we're going to make. And then you have the rise of like intense competition where organizations realize, okay, no, we need to have this marketing concept and not just in terms of what it is we sell, but how it generates value for the consumer. And then also even differentiation, um, yeah, differentiation strategies in regard to branding, um, the total offering, the package. So it's not just a car, right? It's the status symbol, it's a certain brand, it's a certain, it has certain features. And then we're at this now, this new era of kind of this, um, you know, concern for society. And this is another way for companies to differentiate themselves, right? Um, I might have a great, you know, yeah, brand. I might have a great slogan. I might really appeal to consumers. But once again, competition is so intense. So how can I further create not just an appeal, but almost an emotional bond with my consumers, right? Because emotions actually serve as uh, kind of like a cementing um, element in regards to relationships, right? And so organizations look to do that as well. Um, there's also been a, a push for kind of the stakeholder mindset where organizations, you know, need to think more broadly. Um, I, I often use, uh, I call it the spice model with my students, whereas we think in terms of our stakeholders as our, our um, society at large, our partners, so meaning kind of suppliers, distributors, um, investors, customers, and employees. Those are kind of like your core stakeholders. Um, and if we're thinking about those, right, different organizations might prioritize uh, different aspects at different times. So some might feel like, hey, I need to focus my efforts more towards customer satisfaction, whereas other organizations might say, hey, I need to really focus on my employees. If my employees are happy, they're going to be more productive and better, which is going to spill over to my customers being happier and better. Um, but this greater focus on societal welfare is kind of a slippery slope um, because, you know, it's going outside the realm of business. Um, you know, you, you went into business to produce something, to sell something. We've been speaking with Dr. Kimberly Josephson here on Consumer Choice Radio. She's an assistant professor of business and the associate dean for the Bruin Center for Graduate Success at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. Dr. Josephson, thanks so much for being on the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, -S, and David at Clement Liberty. 
and find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.